Let's step back into the, to the Word of God where we were last week, Romans chapter uh, 14, Romans chapter 14. If you're using uh, one of those blue Bibles that are located underneath the seats around you, or if you don't have a Bible, you can use one of those. You can turn to page 948, and that'll bring you uh, to that section of God's Word. So in the, you know, this is part five, part five of, in this section, we're looking at chapter 14, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse 13, and I think we'll have probably just one more part, uh, one more time in this section, but we're just kind of working through it slowly. I'm just going to remind you a few things, and then we'll just read the section we're looking at this morning. Uh, In the previous section, that was verses 1 through 12, okay, 1 through 12. So it's a unit, 14, chapter 14, verse 1, all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, should be considered a unit. It's all kind of addressing the same thing, all right? In that unit, in the section 1 through 12, uh, the Apostle Paul is there addressing uh, what he calls the weak. Specifically, he says the weak in faith. And again, hopefully you've heard some of the sermons where I've already gone through a lot of... uh, detail and time to explain all that this means, because I can't re-explain it every time we get together, but he addresses both the weak in faith and, in contrast to that, the strong in the church in Rome, okay? That's in that section, but in the section we're in today, and it's important for you to understand this, he's primarily speaking to the strong, to the strong in the church, or the strong in faith, and um, I'll redefine that or define that again for you as we move through the study in case you forgot what that means, but... Understand that as we read the text together, he's speaking primarily to the strong. So, beginning in verse 13, 13, uh, follow along with me as we read, read that, this section of God's Word. It says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. That's a transition verse right there. It's a transition statement. He just, he's transitioning from what he just said in verses 1 through 12. Let us... Basically, everything I just said, based on all I've just said, let us stop doing that. So here he's, he's addressing both, the strong and the weak. But now he, he turns, he shifts his focus to the strong. And he says this, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, You are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith, is sin. All right, last Sunday, we looked at verses 13 and 14, and then as we were doing that, 
I told you that 14 was a, he was speaking to the issue of conscience, and so we went to verses 22 and 23, and I dealt with that all there. This week, I'm not going to look at 22 and 23 again. We already looked at it last week. So again, if you didn't hear last week's message, uh, it's, it's on the website, okay? Available there for you, and I would encourage you to go back and hear it. But we will jump back into 13 and 14 just as to make our way now through the rest of the text, and I'll, I'll say a few things that I said last week. And let me say this. I said this last week as well. In your Bibles, typically above the Scriptures, are something, is something put there uh, uh, in the heading. It's a kind of heading above the paragraphs or whatever. And it's, it's a topic heading. It's what they generally think what this section is speaking of. And it's not inspired or anything. It's just put there by those who produce that particular uh, Bible that you have. So, for instance, if you have the ESV, the the heading above chapter 14 is what? What does it say? Yeah, do not pass, uh, do not cause, oh, mine says do not cause another to stumble. Huh? Oh, okay, perfect. All right, perfect. So do not cause, do not pass judgment on one another. Right, okay, you are right. In above 13, it says, I'm sorry, do not cause another to stumble. Right above 13. So 13 all the way down to 23 on the ESV, it says do not cause another to stumble. Okay, so that's kind of the general idea that the ESV thinks is being captured there. The NET says this is exhortation for the strong not to destroy the weak. So the NET gets it. It understands what I already told you, and it's emphasizing the fact that this is an exhortation to the strong. It's primarily written to the strong in the church, and specifically, don't destroy your weak brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, that's kind of what Paul is getting at. But the New King James, older Bible It just has there over that section the law of love, the law of love. And I told you this last time, to me that is probably a more better, (laughs) more better, um, a better heading really. The other ones are accurate and they're clear and they're getting to it, but this really is about love. This really is, what does love look like? We talk about this all the time. What does biblical love look like? And this is one example of what it looks like. This is what Paul is calling his brothers and sisters in Christ to, to love one another, not destroy one another, which is the exact opposite of love. All right, so as we look through the text, that'll come, you'll hear it again and again as I kind of move through this and explain it. It really is about Christian love love for one another. And here, they just weren't exercising it. They were uh, being really self-centered, selfish, which is the opposite of biblical, biblical love. So, with all that, look back at the Bible again, verse 13, and we're just going to make our way through uh, each verse. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Okay? So I said this last week, the words stumbling block... And hindrance, they're basically synonymous here. They're synonymous. They're communicating the same thing. They are being used metaphorically by Paul. Not literally, but metaphorically by Paul to refer to something that could cause a weak Christian to, spiritually speaking, trip and fall. Trip and fall. That's why I say it's not a literal tripping, tripping and falling. But trip and fall and consequently be hurt or injured spiritually, okay? Uh, to the strong, Paul is simply saying you must refrain from doing something that might cause your weak brother or sister in Christ to be spiritually injured. You with me? Okay? 
That's the exhortation. But decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. He's, again, understand, he's speaking to the strong. And so the brother there is that weak brother. That's what Paul's after. And you'll see, it's, we know that based on the context, and it'll become clear as we make our way through. Now, in this context, what is that something that might be put in the way of a weaker brother or sister in Christ that would cause them to spiritually stumble and be injured or fall or trip? What is it? Well, it is something that would influence the weak Christian, the one having... Now listen, this is what the weak Christian is. It is the one who is having trouble here, at least in this context, it is the one having trouble with accepting or exercising their freedom in Christ, their freedom in Christ, or their freedom from the Mosaic law as a rule of life. This is very important that you understand that is what, that I believe is what Paul is addressing. Otherwise, you can make this say all kinds of things that I do not believe it's saying. So that is a, a definition of the weak brother. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're having trouble fully embracing uh, the truth about their faith in this area, that they are free from the Mosaic law. As opposed to the strong, they are not having that trouble. Uh, they are able to fully embrace all the implications of their uh, faith in Jesus Christ. So, and so they're having trouble accepting or exercising their freedom and as a rule of life, right? And so the one having trouble with that, um, they would violate their conscience then or go against it or dis- possibly disregard, if they disregard what they believe or think God would have them to do, concerning the Mosaic law. So basically, to exercise a freedom that they are not confident to have or not confident that they have before God. That's the issue here. They're having a trouble in that area. They, they, they have freedom in Christ, specifically because they're not under the Mosaic law. Uh, and if, if a, a stronger brother then causes them to, to go ahead and then exercise a freedom that they don't fully believe they have, then that is the something that will cause them to stumble and be spiritually uh, injured or hurt. How? By their wounded conscience before God because of what they did. All right? So I messed that up a little bit for you probably, and you got a little confused. But again, let me just come back to that. What is the something? All right? Let me just talk to you. What is the something? The something is this. The something is causing the weaker brother, basically, who, and who's the weaker brother? The one who's having, having who does not yet fully um, embrace their freedom in Christ, specifically their freedom from the Mosaic law, okay? And so the something then is you, the stronger brother, causes them to end, end up doing something that they believe they can't do, that their conscience says they can't do, before God, and they do that, and then their conscience is wounded, and they're injured or hurt spiritually. So we'll come back to that. You with me? Hopefully. Okay. You got to get that. It's because, again, as we move through the text, people have come up to me, and we've had good conversations about this, but if, if we don't understand really what's going on in the background, we're going to misapply this all over the place. So Then in verse 14, Paul speaks to the matter of one's conscience as it relates to the issue of what one believes is okay or not okay or legitimate or not legitimate before God for the Christian to eat, to eat. 
Now, listen, the issue concerning uh, food that Paul brings up here in verse 14 is, is not an issue in most churches today, right? It's not an issue. Uh, but it was in the first century church. It was. And remember, this was written to the first century church, okay? Uh, it was a church that was made up of both believing Jews and Gentiles. And so it was an issue. Why? Well, because the Jews' entire lives had always been governed by the Mosaic law. And included in that law were certain rules about uh, what they could and couldn't eat. And even certain ways they were to prepare their food, commonly referred to now as kosher. Is the food kosher? Is it prepared according to uh, the standards of what the Old Testament says under the Mosaic law? However, listen, with the coming of Christ and his death on the cross, the Mosaic law as a rule of life for the people of God has come to an end. It's come to an end. Okay? Yes? Yes, beloved. Yes. Okay? However, the Christian Jew in the first century, was having a hard time of letting go of long and deeply held convictions derived from that law. You with me? You see, the historical context is so important, otherwise you miss really what Paul's getting at. Now, in contrast to the believing Jews were the believing Gentiles. When they came to faith in Christ, guess what? They had no previous attachment to the Mosaic Law. They didn't live under it. They never had. And, and, and with that, all of its various rules and regulations, and therefore to accept and embrace the truth that they, as the new covenant people of God, were free from the Mosaic Law as a rule of life, was not difficult for them to embrace. You with me? Right? Except for the fact that you had, you might, and as you read through your New Testament, you'll see this. You had these folks called Judaizers. That's how we refer to them, Judaizers, who were coming along to Christian churches and saying, ah, 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 you have to come under the Mosaic law. You, you have to conform to it. You have to follow the Jewish customs. So, for instance, uh, you have to be circumcised, and you, have, you can't eat this, and you can't eat this, and so on and so forth. And the Judaizers took it even farther. They, they were even suggesting you can't even be right with God, okay? You can't even be right with God unless you come under the Mosaic law, come through the law of Moses, and, or at least observe the Mosaic law. And so Paul addresses that. He deals with that. He attacks that, especially in the book of Galatians. You'll see it there, these Judaizers. So there was this, this tension, this struggle. Now, those in Rome, these weak Jewish brethren, they weren't Judaizers. They understood that they were saved through the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, period. But they were still struggling. They were still struggling with this newfound freedom in Christ. And you can understand why, right? Okay. Romans 14, 14. Then Paul says, I know, this is the Apostle Paul, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus. I, another way to say, I believe you could say that is 
I know because of through my fellowship with the Lord Jesus, because I'm in Christ, I know that nothing, and the NIV says that no food, because that's the context, that's what he's talking about, that no food is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Do you remember I told you about that terminology, that idea of something being unclean was uh, a way of technically describing food that was prohibited by God from the Jewish people. Uh, They couldn't eat it in the Old Testament under Mosaic law. But we know the Mosaic law is no longer the rule of life for God's people. Christ came, he fulfilled the law. The rule of life for God's people is Christ. It's the gospel, It's, it's grace, it's Jesus And it's his spirit that guides us and rules us and empowers us to live for him and please him. Not the law of God, not the Mosaic law, not the Mosaic law, all right? So Paul says, listen, uh, I know, I know in Jesus that nothing is unclean, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So listen, the conviction that certain food was unclean or prohibited by God to eat was the conviction of the weak. They were struggling to let go of it. And so Paul's just making the point. Listen, to them it's unclean. They believe it to be unclean. They still hold that conviction, so it is unclean for them. Why? Well, here's a couple of comments. Um, the One writer says this, the person's conscience, this one who believes it to be unclean, is such that he cannot partake of the food in question without seeing the action as wrong. Such a person should not eat such a food. This is not because of anything inherent in the thing itself. There's nothing wrong specifically with the food. Paul has already made that plain. No, it is because of his conscience that he cannot do it. He should not do it. He must not do it. Another writer says this, if one is convinced in his heart that some foods are unclean, and again, what's that mean? In terms of the Levitical food laws, found under the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. For him then, such foods remain unclean. Until he is convinced otherwise, it would violate his conscience to partake of them. All right? And then we went to verses 22 and 23 last week, and uh, specifically in 23, Paul says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. So if if this person says, I'm not sure, I don't believe, I'm not positive, I'm not confident, I can eat this, my conscience says, I cannot, not without offending God, if he doubts, then he'll be condemned by his conscience. That'll say, you shouldn't have done that. And it goes on to say in verse 23, whatever does not proceed from faith, or that conviction that it's okay to do, is sin. So they cannot do it, they must not do it. And that's, that's what Paul's saying don't do it. Don't, te- don't, don't put them, force them into a situation where they're going to end up doing something that goes specifically against their conscience. Man, why are you doing this to them? You're weak brothers. Compa- you know, we're talking about compassion and everything. Why can't you have compassion for them? Right? So listen, I know, I know there's nothing unclean in and of itself, but hear me. To the one who thinks it it unclean, to him it is unclean. Don't you get it? He can't eat it. Not yet. Not yet. He's not in a position to. Now watch. Verse 15. This is going to get good, real good. For if your brother is grieved, okay? NIV says distressed. 
Uh, the New American Standard Bible says hurt. So if your brother is grieved, distressed, hurt by what you eat, what's it say? You are no longer walking in love. Now, let me explain this. This grief, distress, hurt that Paul refers to, based on the context, is more, I believe, than simply a reaction to the insensitivity or indifference of the strong in flaunting their freedom to eat. So what Paul is talking about is more than an irritation or annoyance. So he's not just saying, listen, uh, be careful not to annoy your brothers and sisters in Christ with your freedom in Christ. He's not, he's not saying that only. Certainly he would include that, but really what he's after, I believe, or what Paul is getting at when he talks about this, uh, the weak being hurt or grieved or distressed or caused pain is when they are compelled by their strong, by the strong in the church here in Rome to follow their example, the strong's example, and eat that which their conscience is telling them is not okay to eat and thereby violate their conscience and suffer spiritually as a result. That's the issue, I believe. That's the issue. That's the warning. That's the exhortation. That's how um, the stronger brother can hurt the weaker brother. One writer says this, that the grief here is simply this, a sorrow of heart induced by following the example of the strong, only to find the conscience ablaze with rebuke and the whole life out of fellowship with the Lord. Let me try to you know, illustrate that for you. So going back and staying in this particular situation, here's the weak Here's the ones who have, you know, they've come up under the Mosaic Law with all of its rules and regulations. Specifically here, we're talking about food. There's certain things they can eat and certain things they can't. And even ways that it's prepared, it has to be prepared a certain way. Yes, they're free from the Mosaic Law, but this is what they've always done. And they knew that if, back under the Mosaic Law, if they did that, it was an offense to God. And so they're struggling here now, and they're not under the law, but they've never let this stuff touch their mouth. They've always been very careful. They've spent great time making sure that they were living and abiding by these uh, instructions and rules and and then here you've got the uh, strong brethren in the church who are gentile and so yeah we're good we've always eaten everything you know and so the fact that uh, we're not under the mosaic law yeah that's fine they've they've never really had any conviction that they couldn't eat this or they couldn't eat that per se uh, in line with the mosaic law right and so they're just you know eating away and and kind of um kind of, you know, what's your problem, Jewish brother, whatever. So they kind of put them in a position where they go ahead and do what their conscience tells them is not okay to do. Have you ever done that? What happens? Just think about it. What happens when you, you violate your conscience, when you go against your conscience? Depending on what it is and how serious it is, I'll just sit, talk from personal experience. Uh, my body has shaken. I've, sh- I've felt the shakes knowing that I'm doing something I'm not supposed to do. I'm just going back through my history and thinking through this. I've felt that, like they say, that, that a, your conscience ablaze with rebuke. Do you, you understand that kind of uh, terminology, that language? Like, and then you're like, oh my goodness, here's that weak brother. What did I do? I have offended God because that's what their conscience is screaming at them. 
And what ends up happening is this guilt comes upon them, this shame, and they can begin to, it could begin to have an effect even on their Christian walk with God. That's what Paul's talking about. And so um, another writer says that the strong who mislead the weak to go against their consciences will seriously damage their Christian discipleship. I agree. Uh, their growth, their walk with the Lord over food? Are you kidding? And uh, this is really what Paul, I, what are you guys thinking, man? You're going you're gonna to just you know, let them, you know, push them into a situation where they end up doing something that they don't believe they can do? You guys need to just back off. Okay, so the, a couple more comments here about that, this idea. It says, one writer says, the eating of the strong coupled with their attitude of superiority. Remember I told you that? Remember, I told you the strong are primarily Gentiles. Paul's already addressed their attitude of superiority towards the Jews in many other uh, areas too. Like, look at, look at that, you know, because uh, pr- predominantly the Jews now have turned against God. It's a small, it began with the, the Jews were coming into the church and were embracing Christ, but then, generally speaking, the Jews turned against Christ, not the ones who came to Christ. The, they got together, Judaizers, they, they convinced them, don't, don't do that, uh, Jesus is not the Messiah, blah, blah, blah. So generally speaking, the nation has turned against God. And so, but the Gentiles, remember, Paul goes to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are coming in and waves. And so the Gentiles are like, they're getting this arrogance about them. Look at us, you know. Look, we received Christ. You were supposed to the people of God. Look at you. Look at how you've rejected their, your Messiah. And so Paul has already dealt with that arrogance. But here we go again. I would say this is this attitude of, you guys don't get it. I mean, this is so ridiculous. You're free from the law. Why do you hold on to that ridiculous old tradition? You know, that type of attitude. So you take that attitude of superiority. You know what I'm talking about? They look, a person looks down and you're like, you're dumb, you know? You're dumb. You should just get with the program. What's your problem? Snap to it, right? Is that love? That's arrogance. That's pride. You couple that with that superiority and then scorn toward those who think differently. And it can pressure the weak into eating even when they do not have the faith to believe that it is right for them to do so. And by doing what does not come out of faith, the weak sin, according to verse 23, and suffer the pain of that knowledge. You put them in a position where they end up sinning, doing wrong, because they've gone against their conscience. Another writer, uh, and again, this sin, just to remind you, this sin is it's not the act, it's not... It's not the eating of the food, per se. There's nothing inherently wrong with the food that the weak brother might eat because he feels pressured to eat because the stronger in their face telling them what's wrong with you. But it's the disregard for what they know or suspect that God wants of them. That's the sin. They disregard it. So in other words, they, in their conscience, they're, they're believing that, yes, I can't do this. God doesn't want me to do this. And then they do it anyway. That's the sin. One writer says this, although the strong are correct, the strong are correct, by the way, and he, Paul, shares their conviction, they must not, the strong, ride roughshod. You, that's where, I thought, I had to look that up, roughshod. Um, the roughshod is, just means um, when you fit a horse with spikes so that he can walk in unstable ground, 
So that's the literal uh, interpretation of rough or uh, meaning of roughshod. So it's come to mean uh, basically being brutal with. <laughs> so they're not to ride uh, roughshod as if they had spikes on their feet and they're just stomping on top of them over the scruples of the weak. What are scruples? Those are ethical considerations or principles that normally restrain you or inhibit action, your scruples, okay? They're not to ride roughshod over the scruples of the weak by imposing their view on him of the weak brother. On the contrary, they must what? Defer. I talked about this last week. Defer. Give way to a weaker, to the weaker brother's conscience even though it is mistaken. Ultimately, he's mistaken. He does have the freedom. But he cannot yet get there. Not yet. Uh, And so, and not violate or cause him to violate it. Do you remember last week I said, uh, I said, yeah, it's not that we would never speak to the weak's conscience or try to help them become strong, okay? But one writer said that first, their faith must be strengthened, their consciences enlightened, and then they can follow the strong in exercising Christian liberty together. It's a process. It's a process of spiritual growth and maturity. It's an understanding of the word. It's patience. It's love. It's all of that. It's, it's not trying to, listen, just get with the program, dummy. You see me eating the food, I'm fine. I'm loving it. Mm, so good. What's wrong with you? You don't know what you're missing out on. And uh, it's so silly that you have all these, these rules about what you can and can't eat. And the weak are like, okay, and they eat. But they're not ready yet to eat because they haven't had their conscience yet fully enlightened and made able to embrace or to believe that it is okay for them to eat that before God. You know, honest, this is one of the things I even see within the church, just the impatience with each other, you know, in specifically spiritual growth. So like, you know, unfortunately, it tends to come from those who are normally a little bit, it shouldn't, but it comes from those who are a little bit farther along, more advanced. And so they forget maybe it took them years to get where they are, years of God's grace, years of his mercy, years of the word and his spirit working in their lives. They forget too that they stumble, they sin, they fall, they seem to forget all that stuff and then a weaker, or not even a weaker brother, I don't want to use that example here because it has a context, but a brother or sister in Christ is struggling to, to come along and to, to get things right, to understand things, to embrace the truths of the Scripture. And instead of being patient with them, loving with them, helping them, encouraging them along the way, they beat up on them. Or they treat them like they're small or dumb. That's not love. So... Finally, one writer says this, it is not enough for a Christian, listen, it is not enough for a Christian that a certain course is not wrong. He must also consider its effect on other people, specifically on his brother. Huh? Yeah. See? Well, it's not wrong for me to do this. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what the strong, they're screaming out. It's okay for us to eat this food? Yeah, it is. But it is not okay to hurt your brother by what you eat. You see? 
And, and let me ask you this. Why would anyone do this? Why would anyone defer? Why would anyone stop and think about how their actions, I said this last time, might negatively impact and actions that they're free to do, but actions might negatively impact their brothers and sisters in Christ. Why would they do that? Huh? Christian love. Christian love. That's why they would do that. It's because of love. It's because they know the love of God. Because that love resides inside of them through the Spirit of God. That love being, what is it that self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one love, it's because of love. That's why we would treat each other not this way if we're walking in love. Okay? By the way, only the strong, someone brought this up to me last time, so I want to point this out. Someone asked me, well, could the weak cause the stronger brother to stumble i don't believe so uh, not in this context not based on these situations so here's this, here's the thing remember what's going on why does he speak to the strong because the strong are in a position to defer the strong are in that position the weak are not so what do i mean well hey the strong know it doesn't matter whether you eat this or eat that or pork or whether it's prepared a certain way. They know that, that these, don't, these things ultimately don't matter to God. They're not living under the rule of law. So they can come alongside their, their weaker brother and they can refrain from eating the pork, if that's the situation, without their conscience being wounded. They can, but the weak cannot. They're trapped. They're kind of in a bad spot, Okay? And instead of wound them in that bad spot, their stronger brother need to be patient with them, love them, instruct them gently in the truth and help them along until they come to that place and can fully experience and enjoy their liberty in Christ together without any problem in their conscience because their conscience then will say, yes, I do have the freedom. You with me? All right. Romans 14, 15, and we'll just look now. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Okay? I mean, that's, it's, that's the key right there. You're no longer walking in love. And then Paul adds this. By what you eat, do not destroy, and not just your brother. Okay? He could just say that. By what you eat, do not destroy your brother. He doesn't do that. He says... Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. A couple things. The word destroy here is, I think, best understood as referring to spiritual devastation. Spiritual devastation, or as one writer put it, the spiritual grief and self-condemnation that the weak incur by following the practices of the strong against their consciences. I just keep saying that same idea and make sure you understand that and get that. Um, so another writer says, if a Christian is, is forced to act contrary to his scruples, even though more strict than necessary, and they were in this case, they may find themselves ruined by their wounded conscience, by their wounded conscience. So that's the idea of destroying them. 
But the reminder to the strong Christian that Christ died for, sacrificed his life for those weak brothers and sisters in the church, it reminds me of what Paul said in the book of Acts when he was speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church. It's in Acts 20, verse 28. And Paul says this. This is to the elders, to the shepherds, this is to the pastors. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained, bought, purchased with his own blood. And one commentator says that the value of the flock, the church, which the elders are to care for, is emphasized by the price that it cost God to obtain it. When I was... um, Looking to become a pastor, I was taken to this passage several times uh, when I was going through that process, and I was reminded, Jeremy, don't you ever forget those people you care for, those people you shepherd, Christ gave his life for them. And so that elevates them, and at least it should, in the mind of the shepherd to, the, to a, a great place, to a place of highest value. And I think that's the same idea that Paul's communicating in Romans 14. Do not destroy by your food the one for who Christ died. 14.16, back your Bibles. Do not let what you, the strong, I believe he's writing to the strong, regard as good be spoken of as evil. And again, in the context, I think, It would be spoken of as evil by the weak. So what's going on here? I believe the thing being regarded as good by the strong is, as I've been saying, a reference to the freedom in Christ that the strong enjoyed. Okay, And more specifically in this case, their freedom from the dietary regulations of the Mosaic law or their liberty to eat all foods. But Paul is warning the strong here not to let their liberty be spoken of as evil. In other words, strong, to the strong. Listen, if you do not walk in love with your weak brothers and defer to them when needed, or in certain situations restrain the use of your liberty for their sake, if you instead insist on flaunting your liberties in the face of and at the expense of the weak, then what you regard as good will be spoken of as evil by the weak who have been spiritually harmed. You must not let that happen. Your Christian liberties must be governed by your Christian love. That's what Paul's saying. Okay? 17. We're making our way. We're making progress here. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Okay? And drinking, he might bring in drinking here because he's going to mention wine in verse 21. Or he might just be speaking generally. It's not a matter of these things, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The strong beloved needed to to have and maintain the right perspective. What is truly important within the kingdom of God should be 
what is truly important to them and given priority in their lives. And that truth, my friends, applies to every believer, every Christian, every citizen of the coming kingdom of God. And what is important in the kingdom of God? What is central to life in the kingdom of God? Well, it isn't what someone eats or drinks. Right? That's what Paul's saying, but rather it is righteousness. Okay? And the way I think to understand righteousness here is simply as upright living or the right conduct to which the believer is called in obedience to the will of God or right behavior in the context within the community of believers. What would right behavior within the community of believers look like? Well, it would certainly look like loving one another. Loving one another. And what else is central to the life or central to life in the kingdom of God? Peace. Again, in the context, harmony among the brethren, the family of God. These are the things that are important. And then finally, joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy in the believer's heart and in the community of believers. And all three, righteousness, peace, and joy, are possible because of the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Another translation puts it this way. Those who serve Christ in this way are pleasing to God. They are pleasing to people too. That is, the Christian who serves Christ by focusing on the things that are truly important or central to the kingdom of God will be pleasing to God (laughs) and men. And again, you could think of men in general here, but I don't think Paul's speaking generally. I think he's talking about the weak. I think it's a reference to the weak. They would be pleasing to the weak if they would love them rather than scorn them and judge them and condemn them and and try to push them into doing something that they are not yet able to do for conscience sake. Now, let's take a quick look at verses 19 through 21. We'll do it together. In this next section, what you're going to notice is that Paul repeats some of what he has already said. And so one writer suggests that he felt that the issue to be so important that it bore continual restatement. (laughs) Uh, He goes on to say that the apostle knew the difficulty of driving home a point that runs contrary to the prevailing attitude. You ever talk to teenagers? You ever talk to teenagers that are just, they're set in a particular way? And what do you find? It's not even teenagers. It's also small children or, or whatever. And you find your way. It's not even small children. It's adults as well. I'm just, but they, they are set in a particular way. And so, but usually this conversation, this discourse happens between a parent and child where you end up repeating the same thing you're saying uh, in multiple ways. You keep going at it right because you're trying to drive home the point because you can see they're not really shifting. They're not really shifting. Come on. So you come at it another way. And why do you do that? Because you're trying to get across something that you believe to be very important that they should embrace for their own good, for the good of the home, right? 
for the glory of God. Paul's no different, okay? He's a pastor. He's, and I think if now that you've understood everything I said, as we read 19 through 21, if you can, and I'll emphasize where I believe, because I believe that's what's going on here. I'll emphasize it uh, with tone of voice. But I believe Paul is just pleading. He just, he just, come on, guys. Verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Uh, the word is destroy here. It's in the English ESV, it's translated destroyed. I just want you to know it's a, it's a different Greek word than the one that was used in verse 15. It's different. This one means just tear down. And that's how the New American Standard Bible translates it, which is, I think, better. Do not, for the sake of food, tear down the work of God. And I believe the work of God here is the church. It's the, the community of believers. I told you, Paul is concerned that this is a unity issue. This could break or disrupt the unity. This could cause them to divide. And they are to defend and uphold the unity of the church, not destroy it. By the way, in the literal Greek text, it reads like this. I want to tell you something. Uh, not for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Not for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. And so, not for the sake of food, is, uh, it's, it begins with that. So they say that's an emphatic position. It just means it's being emphasized. He puts it right up front. Are you serious? For the sake of food? No! Okay. Can't see all that, you know, in your English translation. Uh, but I believe that's exactly how... What, and maybe he wouldn't yell as loud as I'm yelling, but he would still... There would, he would come across like that. Then he says, listen... He says, everything is indeed clean. Again, food in the context. Okay, everything's clean. Yeah, uh uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Everything is indeed clean. Okay, I agree with you. That is correct. Writing to the strong. But it is wrong. It is wrong, my strong brothers and sisters, for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good, he says, not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And uh, so let me just make a few additional comments and then we'll just wrap up. And again, when he says stumble here, one commentator just reminding you again what that means. The stumbling will again consist in the weakened faith under pressure from the arguments and example of the strong doing what they still think is wrong. So we got to keep it in its context. By the way, uh, you see that issue of wine. So people get all worked up about that. He says, don't do this, don't eat or drink wine, he says, right? Beloved, okay, just so we're clear, these were folks in the church who it was not the issue that they thought wine, if they drink wine, they would immediately uh, become alcoholics, that's not the historical, that was not the issue. So, or because they were an alcoholic, they were afraid if they drank wine, they would go back into that spiral, death spiral. 
the most agree that the issue here would have been possibly that the pagans would offer wines and their sacrifices to their pagan gods. They would offer a wine in this process. And then that wine would be used later or sold. Um, and so there was a concern by the weak in the church that somehow, because God was very clear, do not uh, worship other gods, do not be an idolater, that just that association with that wine would be something that would offend God. And so therefore, they, in their conscience, they felt like they couldn't do it. But the reality is it wouldn't matter because there are no other gods and, and these, these uh, this, uh, pagan practices of these idolaters is nothing and, the, and it doesn't somehow transform the wine into something that's wrong or something terrible and they can't drink it. But they were just so concerned, just so concerned that they might offend God. Believe me, living under the Mosaic law for all that period of time, that's where you would be. And so man, you're, you're afraid to turn right, left because you might offend God. And so they're like, you know what? We're, we, we're not even going to drink wine. So again, People want to bring all kinds of stuff into this in the 21st century, you know, like, oh, you know, see, you shouldn't drink wine. Uh, Listen, again, that was the position of the weak because he's speaking to the strong. And it wasn't, again, because they were alcoholics or afraid of becoming alcoholics. It was afraid because they were afraid that this might offend God in some way. And again, I think it's because it was attached to a pagan practice. That's probably what Paul's addressing there, all right? Uh... By the way, then Paul says, right, but he does say anything. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And so uh, anything, anything. He just, you know, he's like that. He just want to, in case I miss something, anything else. But the important thing, one writer says, is, is to take such action that we do not lead anyone to stumble. That is, we must not encourage them to perform actions they can only do in defiance of their conscience. You with me? That they can only do in defiance of their conscience. So, let me try to, uh, by the way, if a, if a person was, uh, I knew a person was an alcoholic previously, and they're struggling, they're fighting against it. They, and so they, if you are an alcoholic, guess what? You make a, usually, you make a determination not to drink at all. Yeah? Yeah, if you're wise. And so because of that, listen, I wouldn't bring this thing in, I wouldn't bring this passage into why I'm going to, how I'm going to deal with that brother. I am not going to uh, drink in front of that brother. I'm not going to invite that brother over to have a brewski. I'm not going to take him to the bar. I'm not going to encourage him to drink. Why? Uh, not so much because I'm worried about offending his conscience, uh, but because he has made a decision that he doesn't want to drink anymore. So it's not even necessarily an issue for him that he thinks drinking is wrong. He's not thinking you can't drink wine because it's offered to the gods, uh, the idol gods, and if you do that, you might offend God. No, he's just made a decision that for him, the drinking of wine is a dangerous proposition. And so out of love for my brother here, just love would apply to that situation, right? Because by the way, his position is not a weak position. You see, that's the problem. I'm, I'm, I'm more convinced people have taken this section, passage of God's word, and mutated it in, in, some, in applying it because he's speaking to weak and strong. There's a context, there's a historical a reality going on there. My alcoholic brother, or who struggles with alcohol, let me say it that way, my brother who may struggle with alcohol, who determines not to drink alcohol because it's dangerous for him to do so, is not something I would try to convince him to go away from. 
I would not say, hey, you have, you have freedom, brother. You know, you have freedom, so you should. I wouldn't do that to him. So he's not, because he's not weak. He's wise. You with me? He's wise. And out of love for my wise, because for him, he could find himself in a bad place very quickly by taking another sip of that drink. But let me go back to the other situation. There are folks who grew up in the Christian tradition who have been taught that, that the drinking of any alcoholic beverage, and I only use this one because it's just more common, it's more relatable to us, that the drinking of any alcoholic beverage at all is a sin. It is not. Okay? It is not. And I've said this before, drunkenness is a sin. And listen, some institutions just make policies, like even uh, educational uh, Christian organizations, they'll say, listen, if you're a student here, you have to make a commitment to not drinking. Sometimes they're doing that just because it's practically probably better for the student body not to drink, and they don't want to deal with the problems that that could lead to. It's not necessarily because they think drinking is a sin. They've just decided that Overall, we think it would be better if the student body didn't drink because if you don't drink, then you can't possibly get to the problems that we see associated very often with drinking. Huh? And all the debauchery and ruin of lives that drinking and alcohol and stuff has led to in people's lives. So there's that. But what if you had just a Christian who grew up in that tradition that says drinking is a sin, it's wrong, okay? You know what? I would not... For conscience sake, I would not then say, hey, Bob, uh, knowing his state, knowing his situation, knowing his, his convictions on that, I would not say, hey, Bob, would you like to go work on some discipleship material? Uh, I'm going to the pub at 5. Love to meet you there. And, uh, oh, that's right, you don't drink. But, you know, it's, it's okay, brother. I mean, we'll just, just have one. We'll just have one. It's no big deal. That's not love. That's not love. And so I would intentionally not do that. I would restrain myself as if I needed to go to the pub anyways. And so that's why I say some of these things don't work. Because, again, I think in this situation, what most commentators believe is these were love feasts. They were meals that they had prior to taking communion as a church. And at those meals is where this this eating of all the foods was going on. And so, yeah, just listen, restrain for a period of time until you can help your brothers come along in the faith. Why do you have to go shoving it in their face or, or telling them they're this or that or they should just, you know, get on with it, right? That's not love. You're destroying them because some of them are partaking against their conscience and they're defiled and it's hurting their relationship with God. That's not love. That's what Paul's saying. So I'll give you one more and then, and then uh, we'll be done. And we'll take communion together. But another example, I was trying to think of real-world examples. In some Christian traditions, uh, or throughout time, um, dancing was uh, said to be sin. Now, could you sin in your dancing? Yeah, for sure. Um, and you, I think you understand what I'm saying. But does that mean... Dancing in and of itself altogether is sin. I'm going to say, I'm going to tell you it's not. I'm going to say there's no way you can demonstrate that from the scriptures. I think the opposite, I can demonstrate the opposite is the case, that dancing can be a way of uh, being celebratory and, 
And so, for instance, if I had, let me just play this out. Let's say I have a weaker brother or sister. Weaker, and I'm calling them weak because they believe that dancing, period, is sin. So we're at the wedding reception. And there's dancing. Okay? I'm dancing. Okay? They don't have to come to the wedding reception. They can lead the wedding reception. I'm not forcing it on them, but it's just a public wedding reception. I'm dancing. But I take it a step further because, hey, hey, brother, come on out here on the dance floor with us. Come on. Come on. You see how much fun we're having? And then I get the DJ, hey, DJ, call him out to the floor, man. That's right. Come on. And then you know, you know what happens. He's like, uh. he's probably left already. Um, no, honestly, he's probably left because that, and that's his right to do. I wouldn't look down upon him if he left because he's like, I don't do the dancing thing and, and I just my conscience says no. Okay. But he's there because he stayed a little longer and he's like, ugh. And then he gets up there and he boogie woogies and then, and, but his conscience is wounded and he thinks he's done something, he's offended his Lord and it begins to hurt him. That wasn't love. I didn't act in love towards that brother or sister. In fact, it might be even more loving just to, I don't know, do something else with them, take them outside, chit-chat with them. I don't know exactly how that all plays out, but I know that scenario I gave you wasn't love. Okay? We'll come back to this one more time. Okay? Check it out. Look at it with me. It's a... Uh, it's in 15.1. Now he's going to step into, he's, gonna, he's still arguing this. And you'll see the heading. You'll see the heading there above that. And the ESV says, the example of Christ. And Paul says, we who are strong, he includes himself, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And then to reinforce that, he turns to the example of Jesus Christ. He's our example. He's our model of what real biblical love looks like.